The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 819 for Sunday, June 14th, 2020. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. You know, the show where you send your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We share all that. We answer your questions. We share your tips. We provide thoughts. We occasionally take some tangents together. The goal is, no matter what we do, for every single one of us to learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include... ExpressVPN.com slash MGG, DevonTechnologies.com slash MGG, and Ancestry.com slash MGG. And they're actually doing some really cool stuff that you can check out. We'll talk more about all of it in the show a little bit later. Uh, for now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fearful, Connecticut with my, uh, I don't know if you noticed here, where is it? Ah, there we go. It's my X-Files mug. X-Files? Oh, I like it. Oh, does it say the truth is out there on that, John? Is that what yes, it says? that's what it says. Very the nice. The truth is out there. That's right. But so the truth is also relative. So we are, it, the truth is relative. That's true. Uh, the truth is evolving. The, uh, the, this show is, is an audio show, but we do record and stream video live when we do, when we do the show and then we leave it up afterwards. So you can watch, we do try not to have too many things in it that would, uh, preclude audio listeners from, from gaining the enough knowledge to learn those five new things every week. But, um, but for those of you that want to watch, uh, you can do that on YouTube. We'll link of course, in the show notes to our YouTube and Facebook pages where the videos live, but they also just live at MacGeekGab.com. You can see them all right there. Uh, for those of you that want to watch along with us, uh, you can subscribe to the Mac Geek Gab calendar at MacGeekGab.com slash calendar, and then visit us at live.MacGeekGab.com where we have an all new page for, uh, for you. Our, our budding summer programmer intern has learned enough, well, actually quite a bit of HTML and CSS uh, and enough PHP this week to, uh, to have totally revamped that page. And that's, that's actually my son, Lucas. So it's, it's fun watching him dig into that. What's also fun is going through all the quick tips that you folks send in and we will start with Scott because, well, that's what we have to start with. Uh, Scott says, my quick tip is for those of us whose eyesight isn't what it used to be and are using a large screen. The tip is that you can make the mouse pointer larger says, while you can certainly shake the mouse, so this is a sort of a bonus quick tip if you didn't know, you can shake the mouse to have it enlarge on the screen temporarily so that you can find it. Uh, Scott says, some of us who missed our ophthalmologist appointment while quarantines are happening might be having a difficult time pointing at stuff on a larger screen because you cannot see the mouse pointer. Don't sit with your face two inches from the screen. Go to System Preferences Accessibility Display and use the slider for cursor size to adjust the mouse pointer slider. Pretty good. Thank you. Thank you for that, Scott. That's great. I had actually did not know that you could increase the mouse pointer size. I can, I can totally see that being super handy on, uh, you know, larger monitors. Or if you, if you're routinely finding yourself shaking the mouse to figure out where the, the pointer is, probably save yourself some headache and just go crank it up. 
So thanks for that, Scott. Did you know about that? Do you use that, John? Um, no, I don't really need it. Um, but yeah, every now and then, you know, I'll wiggle the cursor and, and it'll get larger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of disconcerting if you don't expect it. Right. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. Well, I've just cranked up my cursor so that I can find it on the screen here while we're doing the show, which is good because sometimes I lose it. So there you go. Thanks, Scott. All right. Uh, ben has a quick tip for us and says, users have long wondered why the finder doesn't offer a cut command for moving an item along with paste from one location to another which would be consistent with these commands on, say, text. However, it turns out that it is possible to move an item after all. Copy an item in the finder by, you know, highlighting the item and just doing, you know, command C to copy and then hold option and the paste command in the finders edit menu changes to move. So you can copy with command C and move with command option V essentially making it like instead of copy and then paste, you cut and then paste by changing paste into move. And he points out that uh, I had no idea about this, John. I, I, I've, I, you know, moved things before with the mouse, but I didn't realize you could do it with keyboard commands, but it turns out in 2015, we covered this at Mac observer and that's actually where Ben found it. So very cool. Thank you, Ben. We'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Any thoughts on that, John, before we move on to, uh, to the next one? No, I know about that. Okay, good. That's great. Yeah. Uh, you see the, you, you see a change if you hold down option. Right. But so often I don't, I don't use the edit menu when I'm, you know, copying and pasting files. I'm just command C command V. So I don't, I mean, it, mm -hmm. there's no, there's no thing to see, but you're right that holding down the menu and hitting option We'll show you things. Yeah, that's great. You want to take us to Dan? Dan's got a nice little quick tip. I'm going to take us to Dan. Dan has a good one here. If you have your Apple TV fourth generation plugged into Ethernet, the maximum speed is 100 megabits per second. Your Wi-Fi is faster, so unplug the Ethernet cable and use your Wi-Fi. I had mine plugged into my Eero, assuming that wired is better. For, and it usually is, I think. <laughs> For fun, I was running speed tests today and got about 94 megabits per second. After doing some research, I read about the 100 megabit, megabit per second limit. And after changing to Wi-Fi, my speed test was about 300, which is what I expected. So um, that's a good one. It, it's actually, yeah. So I looked it up in Mac Tracker. So, so it's also called the uh, Apple TV HD, um, the fourth generation. Um. And then, of course, the latest one is the Apple TV 4K, and that one does have gigabit Ethernet. So, um, so I guess the general tip is that some older devices, some older Apple devices, will limit probably due to cost, right? Um, that yeah, that uh, would have been my presumption. I, I I'm not I'm not I because I, I've exp I've been aware of this, and it, I, I think it's great that we're talking about it. Um, I have always chosen if there is an ethernet port near my Apple TV or from setting one up for somebody else, I've always chosen to use ethernet instead of Wi-Fi, And the reason is I can't think of a time where having faster than hundred megabit per second speeds would matter on my Apple TV. But I can think of lots of scenarios where trying to share Wi-Fi bandwidth would matter, especially if you're trying to airplay something from your phone, say, to your Apple TV, 
you, you, you know, you're in, it's much more efficient if they're not both trying to talk to the same Wi-Fi radio at the same time, because they cannot, you know, those devices mm. are not MIMO compatible. So there's a sharing thing going on. So it's much better to have the Apple TV in that scenario on ethernet so that your phone can just stream Wi-Fi and then boom, it, you know, it comes right back down uh, via the wire to Apple TV. So that's why I've always left mine there. I mean, even 4k streams are what, uh, 25 uh, megabits. Yeah. Per I second. looked it up. Yeah. About 25 megabits per second. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, but, you know, to avoid congestion, it's, uh, yeah, as you pointed out, um, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I, 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 you know, if you're downloading a lot of, I mean, I don't know how many apps you'd be downloading to the Apple TV, but, um, I mean, it, it, yes, it is good to know this information, whether you choose to use the Wi-Fi versus ethernet is sort of scenario dependent, but, but, you know, always good to make informed choices. So no, this is great. Thank you, Dan. Mm -hmm. Any more on that one, John, before we move on? No, we're good. Cool. Uh, Alex in our chat room that we mentioned earlier at live.macgeekup.com reminds us that control scroll uh, is another handy thing. And control scroll is something I find myself doing accidentally sometimes. And what it will do is it will zoom the entire screen. So that can be handy if you've got, you know, small stuff on the screen. You want to kind of dig in and drive around. Control scroll will do it. And of course you can, you, it, where I wind up doing it accidentally is on my trackpad. So I'll, I'll hit control. And then, you know, if I have, uh, you know, two fingers down on the trackpad, well, now I'm scrolling and the screen is doing interesting things to me. So, yeah, but it's a great tip. And, and now I'll remember what I've done so that I can get out of that too, which is even, mm -hmm. you know, that that's sometimes the key. So thoughts, Mr. Braun. No, that's, that's good. Cool. 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 All right. Uh, moving on to Paul who reminds us, he says, I got a, a good text response to a call I made the other day that was in, that was very informative. I called someone and immediately got that auto text that says, can't talk, please text me. He says, so I decided to update mine and add that in on my iPhone in settings, phone respond with text, which is really I like that one. Can't talk, please, or can't answer even. Please text me is a, a great one. I I have I have edited several in there. I've got one that says podcasting, you know, uh, is it urgent kind of thing. Oh, huh. uh, you know, and it's great because when a call comes up, you've got those options right at the bottom of your screen. You just tap one thing and it dismisses the call, sends it to voicemail or whatever, uh, I think, and then also fires off that text. So it's, you know, very, very efficient. Uh, kind of like a manual version of the do not disturb while driving notifications that are automatically sent out when you have that enabled. So mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. Do you, uh, do you have any of those there, John? I don't think so. Okay. No, no I'll have to see. I'll have to add some. Yeah. You can add some, uh, you could, I mean, you could put one in never call only text <laughs> <laughs> or, or wouldn't that put it in a new phone who dis? Right there. Just put that right in so that, uh, you know, people. <laughs> that might actually, that might be a good one for those calls where you don't know who it is. Like, just hit that. Let it take care of it for you. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the cat, in the cat room, in the chat room, uh, Kiwi Graham 
notes, he says, uh, does this auto response work for other than cell phone calls, things like WhatsApp or, you know, Skype or whatever? I don't think so. I think it's app dependent and this is only about the phone app. So, all right. Uh, a quick tip uh, from Ben about messages. He says there are rumors that the next version of Mac OS will offer a catalyst version of the messages app uh, that offers the same features of the iOS version that are all now missing on the Mac. One of these features he says is search as the current Mac implementation is awful searching message threads for uh, the query in their content, but not searching for contacts by name. Yeah. You're not wrong about messages on the Mac being inconsistent uh, with the way messages on iOS is. It's, it's kind of maddening sometimes even like the names, nicknames don't, quite work the same way the names of group chats don't work it like yes so but ben offers us a workaround he says a way to work around this search issue is to initiate a new message to the desired contact this will reveal their current thread plus you can compose for any of a contact's channels emails numbers etc to find the unified thread of all of them because messages on the mac does do the unified threads now he says, this is helpful if you've created, say, a two-factor authentication contact for all two-factor authentication codes from various senders. That's interesting. I never thought to do that. Just throw them all. Whenever you get a new two-factor authentication message, just add that number to a single contact that is 2FA. I've added, I, I do it a little bit differently. Like I have, I get 2FA codes from Twitter a lot, I guess, and and so I have like a Twitter contact that includes their 2FA number. And I've done that with a couple others so that I know, you know, what those are when I'm, when I'm scrolling through things. So, so that's a good one, Ben. Any uh, thoughts on that or, or tips on that, John? No. Okay. Cool. Uh, Todd, Todd has a great story that comes with a, a quick tip. He says, my younger son recently found an iPhone 10 laying face down on a bike path near our home, and there was no damage to the phone. Nothing physically on the phone revealed who might own it, so he brought it home. He says, I tried holding down the power button and asking Siri who owns this phone, and Siri gave the answer, but only the first name of Sue. Not exactly helpful. He says, I assume Sue did not have a contact card with much info. I tried asking Siri to call my husband or daughter or son, etc., and all came back with, what is the name of your husband, etc.? For the heck of it, I asked Siri, call my home. The screen came back with something like, Sue, last names, mobile number, might be, 1234567890. That gave us Sue's last name, which we thought we recognized. We looked Sue up in our town uh, listserv directory. She was listed, so we emailed her. Next, we looked her up in our town directory and then walked her phone to her house. Sue was very happy to have her iPhone back. Very cool of you, Todd. That, what a great little, little thing for, for you to do with your son. Uh, he says, it's always interesting what Siri will suggest. And he says, I'm glad this one was helpful. But a quick tip here, if there wasn't one already, and there's probably three uh, already in this one, he says his quick tip is, it's a good time to remind all of us and all of our family and friends to update the contact card, like your own, my contact card in your iPhone so that if someone's in a scenario uh, like this, they, you know, it will make it easier for people to get back to you. Not everyone listens to Mac Geek Gab 
and uh, and and thinks like Todd does. So if you lose your phone, you want to make sure that it gets back to you. So that's a great reminder, Todd. I love it. And what again? What a great story. I love it. The feel good story of the day, which is cool because you know what, John? Happy anniversary, my friend. Uh, this show is coming out on the fifteenth, but. And we're recording it on the 14th, which is sort of normally how we do things. But on the 13th, we celebrated our 15th anniversary of having released our first Mac Geek Cab episode, man. That's pretty cool. Uh, so we're into those rough teenage years. Okay. Yeah, I think we've been in the rough teenage years for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, man. Um, I was thinking about, you know, my, my kids were born, but they were you know, young five and three, um, we had not quite moved to New Hampshire here. The first episode we recorded in my, in my office in our house in Connecticut, if, uh, if memory serves, and I'm pretty sure it does. In fact, we recorded several episodes in my office in Connecticut, uh, that no one ever heard. And as we sort of, you know, got a feel for the show and tweak things, and, uh, and then we were, but you know, the whole sort of the whole impetus was, was twofold. Number one, it was that, um, a friend of mine named Mike Dunn, I had been out to dinner with like him and Robert Scoble and Dave Parmet. There was some trade show going on in New York and I, I, I didn't go to the show, but I, I had driven in and just to have dinner with these guys. And on the way back, Mike was like, you know, dude, you should get into podcasting. And I'm like, Hmm, Okay. And, uh, and then I started listening to podcasts because I was driving up and back to New Hampshire a lot because we had like either just bought the house up here. We're about to, we did some renovations, so we didn't move right away. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, we should, what am I going to do? And then of course, you know, this was the second time I was moving away from Connecticut and you and I would get together on Sunday nights and ironically, or perhaps this is why you chose the mug, but we would get together and watch the X-Files, right? And it was like, well, we can't do that when I leave for New Hampshire. So how do we make sure we we keep having our geek gabs that we would just sort of naturally have? And it was like, wait a minute, mm -hmm. let's do a podcast, right? So, um, so that's that's kind of where the idea for the show came from. And we didn't really know what the topics were going to be. We didn't know what the format was going to be. And that we've we've told the story several times, but that we also didn't know for the first episode. We it wasn't until episode three that we stumbled onto the Q and A format. And turns out that it's a good one. So, so happy anniversary, man. Yeah. You there? Are you, spe you're yes. speechless. No. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, I'm speechless. <laughs> anything, yeah. any thoughts about, you know, the last 15 years of doing this crazy thing? No, it's, uh, like you, something I look forward to. Yeah. Um, you know, helping the community and, uh, just uh, something to do in my uh, semi-retirement. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's great. Cool. Well, I just I just wanted to acknowledge it. Uh, we have plenty of tips and questions and all that stuff to keep going with. In fact, um, we, we have a, yet one last quick tip from Donna that I didn't know about, but this might, I shouldn't say but, and this might be the answer for a thing we've been fighting with. Donna uh, says that um, I think it was on a Mac voices, a recent episode of Mac voices from April with Jeff Carlson. They were talking about the Apple watch. He and Chuck Joyner and Donna pointed us to a segment 
that where Jeff talks about uh, his own quick tip, choosing a Wi-Fi network on the Apple Watch to assist when you're out of Bluetooth range. And I always thought that the watch would sort of just do this automatically, and it kind of does. But if you go on your watch to settings and then Wi-Fi and then choose network, you can pick which network it's going to choose. Like it will show you the list of things that it knows about that are in range and you can tell it which one to use. And it seems like since I've done this four or five days ago, I've had no real issues with, you know, the, like the whole thing in the last episode that we were talking about where sometimes the watch just doesn't unlock your computer or things don't seem to quite be in sync. And we talked about how, you know, there's that trait, that handoff from Bluetooth to Wi-Fi when the watch is within range of your phone and Bluetooth is, is the transport protocol versus Wi-Fi. So, um, so maybe this is, you know, helping it to nudge in that right direction. So thank you for sharing, Donna. I've certainly gone and done this on my watch. So, um, highly recommend trying it out. It's not going to hurt. Well, I mean, maybe it will, but I doubt it. I doubt it, John. Any, uh, any more thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. I still got to consider getting a watch, an Apple, Apple watch. watch. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I, um, it is the watch I wear most frequently. I don't wear it every day. Uh, I have other watches that I like to wear, but it, it definitely is the one that is worn more frequently than any other watch. And it's usually more than 50% of the time I'm wearing it now. I like, uh, you know, I like the notifications. I like all of that stuff and the, you know, the health tracking, is like, I appreciate it. I guess it's the right thing to say. It's not um, a singular focus of mine. And I know it is for many people. And I don't say that judgmentally. I just, for me, it's not that right now, but, uh, but it is, I like it. You know, if I, if I'm going for a bike ride or even just playing my drums, you know, to like practice stuff, but also get some exercise, it's kind of a nice simultaneous thing. The watch will tell me like, yeah, you had your heart rate up for, you know, 32 minutes while you were playing your drums, which is what it told me this morning, right before we recorded the show. So it is handy. And with the lightweight band, the watch itself is super lightweight. So with a lightweight band on it, um, you know, I don't mind playing my drums with it. Whereas if I'm wearing a heavy, like metal watch, it's no, mm, 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 mm. it's got to come off, but yeah, it's cool. I like it. So you, I mean, you know, I know you ride your bike around you'd go for walks and all of that stuff. So the whole, you know, step counting and, and all of that, it's, it's just, you know, yet another sort of data point for your life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I use the phone. I mean, I have apps that'll, uh, yep. you know, like show me my bike ride and, and, or walking. Uh, I haven't done that in a while. What did I use for measuring walks? Hmm. Strava, I think. Strava. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The phone does an okay job. The watch does. It seems the watch tracks steps better than the phone, but the phone's not terrible. Uh, and, you know, the cool part is they will use each other to mm -hmm. sort of come up with e an even more accurate number, right, of uh, of steps and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's smart, which is mm -hmm. how Apple kind of goes. Um, speaking of health management, John, Mac OS 10.15.5 added some battery health management in it. You dug in a little bit. You want to tell us, tell us what you learned? Yeah. So, um, you know, we actually did an article on this, but, um, so here's the thing. So this came in 10.15.5. 
um, they added a new feature, which you can find in uh, Energy Saver. Um, and I did some testing with it, Dave. So, you know, I'm still thrilled with the, the new machine here. Sure. Um, MacBook Pro 16-inch. Uh, yeah. But, um, and, and I monitored the battery uh, with uh, fruit juice, which okay. uh, I think everybody should. And one thing it shows is the uh, battery capacity uh percentage of the maximum capacity and okay typically that number keeps going down and it was actually going down at a rate that was starting to concern me mm. so i'm like huh why is this happening and so i, I went online and I, I found something that offers suggestions sure about charging the battery and i think this is generally true for any apple device or, or pretty much anything with a battery I think in the old days, charging it all the way up to a hundred and then running it all the way down may have been the way to go. Yep. But the recommendation that I got and I use on both my machines, uh, Mac and iOS is, uh, don't charge it all the way up to a hundred and don't let it run all the way down. You know, maybe 2080 is like a, a threshold mm. uh, that you should stay between. Um, but what they did on, on the Mac here, which I believe helps is, they introduce some functionality that'll, uh, from what I can see, it measures the uh, temperature and looks at the charge rate, but it'll collect information and then it will not necessarily charge. Uh, I think their strategy is it won't necessarily charge at maximum power. Ah. Um, so it kind of does that in the background. You can disable it huh. if you want to. Um, and, and they even give this advice. So they're like, you know, we monitor this stuff and, you know, based on this monitoring, we're going to charge in a more efficient manner. Um, and what proved to me that it worked, Dave, is that, you know, so I was watching this number, you know, again, the maximum percentage going down and it was hovering it. What well, once I put new practices in and had this feature enabled, it was pretty much hovering around 90%. Um, now I just looked at my machine after you know, working, working with it for a while. And it's actually now at 91%, which <laughs> that's good. So I, so I think this behavior is actually made my battery healthier. So that's cool. That's great. No, it, it like I, I've always appreciated that Apple continues to iterate on the software side of battery management. Uh, it, it, you know, fruit juice is, was something that was absolutely like necessary, not just to monitor your battery, but to make sure and remind you to better manage it. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, not so good for fruit juice, but good for all laptop owners or Mac laptop owners. You know, this is including some more of that functionality where it should be, because instead of Mac OS, just reminding you, Hey, you should, you know, do this thing to keep your battery healthy. It can just do the thing for you. Right. Because it's, it, it is the operating system. Two points, one or one point, one question. Alex says, um, this feature is also technically Alex from our chat room, live.macgeekhub.com. It says this feature is also technically advantageous. If your portable is mostly always plugged in. Um, and he's right. You know, if you are someone who leaves your portable plugged in, this can really help. And bad, Apple's been doing things in sort of in the background to mitigate uh, any battery damage from being plugged in all the time. 
Uh, they've been doing that for what I think we figured out. It was about five, six years ago that they started doing that. But this kind of this furthers that. So yes, that's a great point because uh, it is bad for your battery to, like you said, John, to just be, uh, you know, either charging at full tilt or, or not depleting at all. You know, I, I like, I've always liked Adam Christensen's terminology, keep the electrons moving. Um, and this helps do that. Kiwi Graham asks in the chat room, uh, says where in energy saver is this setting? Uh, he's seeing on his retina 2012 MacBook pro that it's not there. Uh, I'm finding it, John, in system preferences, energy saver, and then at the very bottom of the screen, battery health dot, dot, dot. Is that where you're seeing it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, okay. He, Kiwi Graham says this is not showing up on his uh, MacBook Pro, uh, 2012 MacBook Pro. So it, this is not necessarily a thing for all Mac laptops, just you know, some presumably newer ones that have the ability to do this. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because the 2012 is what I had, the MacBook Pro 2012. Sure. Upgraded. Right, right, right. um, So I guess it has different charging or battery technology, whatever. Well, yeah, obviously it does. Mm -hmm. Because I remember replacing the battery in my 2012 a couple of times. Right. You could do that with the 2012. Right. Not with the 2016. Oh, and maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Not 2016, 16 inch. 16. I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. Right. 2019, 16 inch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mike Rose. Hey, Mike. Uh, on the Facebook chat, which, yes, we've got bifurcated chats. That's why we're trying to do this live.macgeekup.com thing so everybody can see everybody else. But Mike Rose points out uh, that iOS is also doing that uh, predictive charging while you're sleeping at night to try to basically hit a hundred percent charge right about the time that you would take it off charge, uh, on a typical day, you know, in the morning so that again, your phone isn't just charging at full tilt up to that maximum and then sitting there for most of the time you're sleeping. So Mm -hmm. it, it, it trickles you up, uh, which again, you know, better for the battery because you're not heating it up. So, yeah. It is good. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Um, all right. We have a bunch of questions. I uh, I want to uh, do a few things before we get to the questions. The first is in the last episode, I asked, uh, I, I, I threw out my own geek challenge because I wanted a way to play audio from my phone to my Mac. So making my Mac an audio receiver of wireless audio from my phone. Uh, we mused on a couple of things and we got really close, but we didn't get there. We talked about Bluetooth being a potential, um, and you can pair the devices with Bluetooth, but that does not create an audio pipe, uh, at least not in any obvious way. Many of you, but, uh, but Brian was the first, uh, uh, on Twitter anyway, pointed out that we were close when we said that there was, um, something with that uh, rogue amoeba offered and indeed that's true i was looking at a, their product airfoil what i should have been looking at was their product airfoil satellite because airfoil satellite does exactly this it turns your mac into a receiver now it's built to be used as a companion app 
with airfoil, at least primarily so that you can send audio to all of your devices, Macs and iOS and airplay speakers simultaneously and airfoil satellite turns your Mac into that audio receiver so that it can play audio. And it talks back to airfoil and gets the latency, right? So hopefully things are in sync and all that great stuff. Well, it also just turns your Mac into an airplay receiver. Uh, and as soon as I ran airfoil satellite on my Mac, I like, that was it. There was no step two. Uh, it showed right up on my phone. I was good to go. And of course, then I can capture that audio and send it anywhere or depending on how I want to route it. Airfoil satellite even has some sort of uh, basic routing built in where you can say when audio comes in to this device or to this app, play it out, you know, to another uh, path or channel or whatever. So airfoil satellite was the thing. Thank you to everyone who wrote in about that. Uh, very, very, very handy. And there, <laughs> there were lots of you, uh, Jamie and others also wrote in though, with a different solution. And Jamie says, and the app you're looking for is called air server at airserver.com. He says it does exactly what you're asking, allowing the Mac to act as an airplay speaker. And the cool part about air server is it's just sort of, I think, as I understand it running all the time. So you don't have to launch a separate app to put it in this mode. You just, you know, you set it up and it, it, it is in that mode all the time. So, um, so, you know, uh, thank you for that, Jamie, yet, yet another, yet another solution here. So thoughts on e either or both of those, John, before we keep trucking along here. No, you know, I, I tried to test. So I put my Mac in Bluetooth mode and made it discoverable and then my phone could see it. And then I said, well, connect to it. And then I got what I think is it, it's the two rings. I think it's hotspot. Oh, right. That but makes I sense. Think, but I don't think it was giving me an internet connection. I think it was just giving me a local connection so you can then browse files huh. on the other machine. I'll have to play with that a bit more. Yeah. Because that was my speculation. I was like, well, you know, will it show up in AirPlay? And it doesn't. You need you need this thing. Yeah, so. you need something to, to make it into an AirPlay receiver. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I tried the Bluetooth thing too, and it was like, you know, I could... I could tell it to connect, but never was there an audio option. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, John, listener John, also chimed in and, and he recommended both Air Server and Reflector from AirSquirrels.com. Uh, so we will put that in the show notes, too. Uh, because, you know, more options are better. And so we've got that there. He also had a, again, related tip to the Apple Watch unlock issue that we uh, mentioned in 818 and then discussed with Donna's quick tip earlier today, saying, uh, he says, I've had this issue and it had to do with the order of device wake up. Put your Apple Watch on first, then unlock your phone. The watch cannot be used as a key for your Mac unless it is already unlocked and on your wrist, similar to the requirements for using Apple Pay. And by unlocking your phone, assuming that you have the two paired together, your watch would unlock when your phone unlocks. So put the watch on your wrist first, then wake up your phone. Now everything should be in sync. So uh, so thank you for that. That makes good sense, John, being you know intentional about how you put these things together. It's good. 
Any uh, any other thoughts on any of that, Mr. Braun? Squirrel. Squirrel. Well, that's it. Yeah, exactly. All right. The next thing that I want to do is I want to talk about our uh, sponsors for this episode. As long as we're good and, and that's all good by you. We're finished with the last segment and all that, John. Yes, sir. All right. Look, you've heard us talk on the show. We talk all the time about how important it is to have a VPN. And, you know, I mean, I've worked from home for decades. A lot of you are new to working from home, but a lot of you have been working from home for decades, too. Even still working from home, it's important to choose a VPN that you know and trust. And we always do our research here on everything we talk about, including our sponsors. And that's why we're really happy to have ExpressVPN on board as a sponsor, because we've checked them all out. And ExpressVPN is the best one we've found, the best VPN we've found. ExpressVPN doesn't log my data, right? All those free VPNs, you got to be suspect of them, man, because... The way they make money is by selling your data. They track you and, and then they sell it to ad companies. ExpressVPN goes a step further. They develop this tech that they call trusted server that literally makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. They all run from like RAM disks that are read only. So it's not, it cannot track anything. It's just, there's no way it's just read only. And if they turn it off, well, there's nothing written. That's just how it works. It's pretty cool. And it's fast. ExpressVPN, you know, no problem. We've done, you know, live shows and stuff over ExpressVPN from hotel rooms and things like that. Like never a problem. And of course, streaming and all of that just works fine. So you've got to go check it out and you get a deal. You can protect yourself with the VPN that we use and trust by using our link expressvpn.com slash MGG today. And that gets you an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash MGG. One more time with feeling, visit expressvpn.com slash MGG to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. Next up, Devin Fink. DevonTechnologies.com slash MGG is where you're going to go to get a 10% discount on DevonThink or upgrades to it, right? Just being a listener of Mac Geekab gets you this. DevonThink came up because we were asking, where would you go to organize all of your PDFs, right? That's, that's how this came up most recently. Of course, it's come up many times over the years, but that was the question we asked a, a couple of months ago. And by and large, like that, we just got tons of responses from all of you folks saying Devin think is the place to do this. Well, it turns out, yes, it is, but it can do so much more because Devin think just helps you collect file, organize, edit, and annotate all kinds of documents. Yes, of course, PDFs, but you could archive all your email with their enhanced email archiver. You could scan all your paper documents in with their own revised scanner interface and you can even like take PDFs that are already in there and, you know, put custom stamps on them before like giving them out to others. And then once everything's in there, you can organize documents in any way you want. You can create smart groups to let you quickly group data. 
uh, based on like different searches. And they've got an integrated AI that assists you with all your filing and searching. And you can automate things with smart rules and reminders. Even without being a programmer, Devin Think is happy to take over your most boring tasks. As I said, devontechnologies.com slash MGG is where you want to go. That's D-E-V-O-N-T-E-C-H-N-O-L-O-G-I-E-S.com slash MGG. And our thanks to Devin Think for sponsoring this episode. Look, it's really cool being able to discover your family's stories, right? I was fortunate enough. Some of you may know my grandfather invented those machines that are the oval binocular viewing machines that you kind of see everywhere. And he traveled all over the, the, the country, certainly, and even parts of the world beyond the country, checking out different things, meeting different people. We got to hear a lot of his stories from him and from others, but there's a lot of stories in your family you might not be familiar with, including, you know, it's been more than 75 years since the beginning of World War II. And you may be familiar with some of the major events and battles of World War II, but there are so many more stories to uncover the skill and bravery of the Tuskegee Airmen, an all-African-American squad of fighter pilots, the incredible women who trained to become pilots and mechanics, the Japanese-American battalion that became one of America's most decorated units. All of these stories and more are actually being assembled by Ancestry. And of course, you can use Ancestry by visiting our URL, Ancestry.com slash MGG, to start discovering your family's story today. Again, that's Ancestry.com slash MGG. They've pulled all of this stuff together, and you can use them to find and honor your ancestors who served in World War II. You can get a new take on your ancestors' World War II experience. You might have heard bits and pieces of the stories, but sometimes it's interesting to see you know, how they connect with other things that were going on at the time. Ancestry has really pulled all this together. They've got a draft card collection. Again, very cool stuff. So check it out. As I said, discover your untold stories and more by visiting our URL, ancestry.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Ancestry for doing what they're doing, which is very cool, and sponsoring this episode. All right, John. Well, let's... Uh Let's answer some questions, shall we, my friend? Uh, I think you're still muted. I think I've unmuted you here, but I think you're still there muted over there. All right, good. Uh, all right, Alan. Uh, I'm curious to, as to your answer to this question too, John. He says, can you recommend an app for encryption of files or folders on my Mac? I have different types of files that I would like to encrypt. What apps are out there that you guys trust. So I don't do a lot of this. I, I, on my laptops, I certainly, you know, run file vault or now with the T2 chip, it's sort of all happening that way. But I, you know, I encrypt my drives, but I don't do a lot of stuff where I'm encrypting individual files or folders. However, the first thing that came to mind with this question and the thing that I most likely would go and use is Encrypto from MacPaw. Uh, and only because it's just sort of top of mind. I've heard lots about it. I've used it occasionally, but I'm curious uh, what, uh, what, what you would use, John. Um, a couple of things. So to see what I had installed in my machine, Dave, I went to, um, I right-clicked on a file, mm -hmm. went to the services menu. 
so one option I have in there, as you said, is uh, encrypt or decrypt with Encrypto. Okay. So uh, I think Encrypto is a good choice. They have it for both Mac and I believe Windows as well. So uh, cool. So that's nice if uh, you, if you want to go cross platform. Yeah. A couple of other options. So here's another thing that shows up, Dave. Open PGP encrypt file. Now I'm like, well, I don't have Open PGP, but um. Huh. What I do have no. It, uh, uh, hold on, let me let me find here. Well, Open PGP is a. Uh, oh, where is it? Well, it's somewhere. GP, uh, GPG. If, oh, if you download GPG, GPG tools. PG, yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's within there. And then the third option, Dave. This is something that's been around for quite a while, and I'll link to a little article here. But did you know that the zip utility? will do encryption the zip utility in mac os yes really yeah and i actually have a dandy article i will paste it in there but yeah so so you got to do it from the terminal okay um, but it's pretty straightforward uh you say zip and then space dash e space the name that you want to give the zip file space and then the file or folder oh. that you would like to encrypt um so from what I understand, it's not great. It may not be great encryption, but you know, it's better than nothing. Okay. Uh, yeah. The nice thing is that zip is on pretty much every machine in some form or you can get it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So th there's no GUI way of doing that directly in Mac OS though. There are third party tools that would invoke that. Um, but, but yeah, it's right there. Okay, cool. Um, out. Here's a here's a tip. Go. <laughs> um, so if you're gonna assign a password to uh, a file, yeah, um, don't use the same channel that you're gonna send the encrypted file to the person with uh, to use to send the password. <laughs> uh, fair, yeah, yeah. Um, you typically want to use a different channel if you're gonna send a, a, a different channel for sending the encrypted content and sending the password. So that's where something like GPG tools comes in super handy because you don't, you would never have the password to decrypt it. You would just use someone's public key to encrypt and right, send it right. to them. Right. And then it's up to them because they've got their private key that was generated at the mm -hmm. same time as their public key and their repair. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Alex in the chat room points out that, you know, disk utility can make sparse bundles that are encrypted. Right. So that's just built right into Mac OS. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there you go. Lots of options. Right. See, I knew we would have a good conversation here. This is, this is why we do it the way we do it. It's awesome. Cool. All right. Uh, let's see, Mark. Oh yeah, 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 Mark. Okay. So Mark wrote in and says, speaking of disk utility, uh, I've inherited a Mac mini server late 2012 running Catalina. I opened disk utility and noticed something odd. It says that the named disks are shared by five volumes and then on different disk, four volumes. Yet I don't see all five volumes in disk utility. They should be listed uh, not just as other volumes. Yes. What are these mystery volumes? So, um, so I dug into this, right? Because what he's seeing 
is he's seeing his, you know, let's call it Macintosh hard drive because that's the default name. I don't know what it actually is, but he's seeing Macintosh hard drive and Macintosh hard drive data. That's how Catalina works now. So two volumes for one, for one volume ish, right? Cause Mac OS sort of marries them together, but disk utility is telling him and you that those two volumes are on a disk with three others with five total volumes. What are those? Well, Disk utility is not wrong, but it's also hiding things from you. Um, if you were to go to the terminal and type disk util space list, all lowercase, you would see all five of those volumes there. And then you might start to realize why Apple has chosen to, uh, to obscure them. Because what those volumes are, are in addition to Macintosh hard drive and Macintosh hard drive data, are preboot, recovery, and VM. So preboot is presumably a thing that it needs uh, as part of the preboot process before it can get the system going, probably to decrypt your drives and things like that. So, yep, okay, good. Recovery, we know what the recovery volume is. We want it to be there, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, well, Apple has decided it's not something that should show up in disk utility, mostly because they don't want you removing the recovery volume. They don't want you removing the preboot volume. And they definitely don't want you removing the VM volume because VM is where your virtual memory is stored uh, on the disk. Virtual memory is when your Mac, I don't want to say only when it, it's because it's not true. Uh, when your Mac runs out of memory in RAM, it will use the disk as sort of overflow. But there are lots of other scenarios where it will also use virtual memory on the disk uh, to keep things in RAM managed uh, more properly. So that virtual memory is constantly being used. It's constantly being read and written to. I believe Catalina, maybe Mojave though, is the first Mac OS that uses a separate virtual memory volume. That is common standard practice throughout all of Unix, but because Mac OS was, you know, HFS was being put or Mac OS was being put on existing HFS volumes in the early days. We didn't, you know, Apple didn't want things to, you know, get convoluted with an, yet another volume to shove in there. Now with APFS, that's sort of trivial because you can just add and remove volumes. And since it's an SSD, things aren't being stored in physical locations, specific physical locations anyway. So, um, so that's what those five volumes are. And what a great question. Cause this, when I first read it, I'm like, Mark, what are you talking about? Like what, wh what five volumes? And then he, he dug in a little more and showed me and it was like, Oh, right. Yes. Got it. So thoughts on that, John? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> Did I get anything wrong or, uh, am I, am I mostly on track there? No, I think we're good. Uh, mm. Some things are hidden. Some things are hidden. Yeah. And, and in the chat room, Kiwi Graham is saying, so uh, either Etsy slash ETC slash VM or private slash VAR slash VM is no longer used. I, I think, I think they are used. Let me look here. Uh, DF slash H. Where is VM? Yeah. Well, so this is interesting. It private var VM is still the location that it's storing your virtual memory files. It always has been in Mac OS 10 uh, and Mac OS and OS 10. But now the difference is instead of private var VM being located on your boot volume, 
your VM volume is mounted at the mount point of slash private slash var slash VM. You can see this in a variety of ways. I just quickly pulled up uh, in terminal. I did DF, uh, which shows you sort of volumes and free space, but it also shows you their mount points. Most external volumes when you or secondary volumes when you mount them are mounted in the slash volumes folder it's usually slash volumes slash disk name well in this case it doesn't have to be though and in this case mac os is mounting the vm volume at slash private slash var slash vm so it's all right there if for some reason your machine booted up and didn't have a vm volume it would just store those virtual memory files on your boot drive in that same folder, which is kind of cool. I know it's weird. It's not how we think of things on the Mac that volumes are mounted as folders of our root drive. But in fact, that's how Unix likes to do things. So great question. Uh, and yes, there it is. And I, I'm speculating that Mac OS would, would do what I said. It's possible Mac OS as it's booting, if it doesn't see a VM volume, it might just create one because again, that's sort of trivial with APFS. I don't know. It could not create one and just store the files and it would, you know, your system would work, which is, you know, sort of the good thing. All right. Anything else on that one or uh, should we go to Bob? Uh, I think we're going to go to Dr. Bob. So Dr. Bob writes in and sends a screenshot and everything. Um, every app in my applications folder now displays the .app extension, which can no longer be hidden in the usual way. Um, the usual way, I guess, being that there's, if you do a get info on a file, there's a little checkbox where you can enable or disable this. Um, but it seems he wasn't able to. Why is that? I was, I was wondering, um, he, is this a new feature in Mac OS 10.15.5? I can't swear to it, but I think it started after the update. Should I be concerned? Do your apps now have the dot app extension? And the answer is no, at least not on my machines. Um, so then I'm like, you know what? I wonder if a bit got flipped somewhere. Um, then I got kind of philosophical about data integrity and stuff like that. But it is possible for, uh, for data, whether it be in memory or your hard drive, to just kind of do a random bit flip. It, it happens. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, I then found a nice article from Apple, and it led me to the answer. Um, and the article is show or hide file name extensions on the Mac. But they mention a particular option here, which I think is what happened. Um, if you go to Finder, Preferences, Advanced, there's a Show All File Names Extensions checkbox. And I was like, is that checked? And you know what? It was, even though he doesn't remember checking it, and I'm sure he didn't. I think it just, you know, it may have happened during the update. I don't know. Huh. So that's what I got for that. That's, um, yeah, well, that, I mean, it makes sense, right? It, like, it, I, yeah, why it got, why that happened is, uh, yeah, but now, you know, like, and I've seen that on Max before. I don't know what the, um, you know, what the, the deal is with that, but I have definitely seen that, um, before. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess the thing is, is that this setting overrides what you see in the finder, which is kind of aggravating. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. You know. 
Yeah, that's, huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, uh, okay. Moving on to Donna. Yeah. Okay. Donna asks, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this one, Mr. Braun, because this is interesting. Donna says, uh, in listening to the last episode, uh, I decided I should change my cable modem password. We were talking about cable modems and logging in and now Safari and sometimes even your cable modem will tell you, Hey, you should, uh, changed from the default password of, of, you know, this login, because uh, a lot of cable modem passwords are admin pass or, you know, user password and things like that. Very, very default. And so she said, um, I'd never changed it before and never even thought of it, but thanks for, you know, talking about this on the show. And now I've changed my password. I thought, okay, so I've never changed mine. And Every time I log in Safari and my cable modem, both yell at me and say, I'm still at the default. You should change this. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. So let's think about this because I'm, I'm open to having my mind changed, but, but John, here's my thoughts on this. My cable modems, you know, web interface is only accessible from people on my local network. Right? So, there's no, uh, there's no issue with someone from the outside world getting in. I mean, they could VPN into my network if they could get into my VPN, but then I'd have other problems in addition to that one. But certainly, you know, anybody that comes over that I give a, um, you know, a Wi-Fi password to even a guest network could get to the cable modem because it's upstream of everything. And and if you know to go to 192.168.100.1, boom. You can see the cable modem and you can get in and you could search online and, you know, figure out what the pass the default password is for that brand of cable modem. And now you're in. But then what? You can see the signal strengths. You might be able to reboot the cable modem. There's often but not always a button in there for that. And that's about it. Like there's no setting, at least when I the cable modems that I've used on providers and I think I've used Time Warner Comcast and Charter are the three different cable modem providers I've had over the years and their firmware, none of them has allowed, you know, the way they tweak the firmware uh, because your provider puts the firmware on your modem, not you, even if you own it, I have never like, there's nothing I can do. So, and the risk is if I change my cable modem password to something other than the default, it's not often that I look at my cable modem. So a year from now, am I going to remember what I set, set my cable modem password to? If I'm on trying to look at it from my phone, maybe I saved it in a different thing. You know, like, so the, the, the risk reward for me has never leaned towards, of course, you should change your password. Uh, so what do you think, Mr. Braun? I'm pretty much with you. I wouldn't. I remember a number of years ago, my parents' ISP, which I think was Charter. We're saying, hey, you know, you got to upgrade. I think it was that they wanted them to upgrade from their uh, uh, free upgrade since they they pay for it in their cable bill somewhere. But um, they're like, yeah, you got a Doxus two modem. You you should get a Doxus three, and we'll uh, you know we'll ship you a new one, and you ship us back the old one. Sure. It's like okay, yeah. So then I came over to uh, set it up, and the way it was set up was that cable modem had a password, and I'm like, oh great. Fortunately, it was set to the default. 
So. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I because at some point they asked me to um, you know, because something when it was it wasn't working right or that they didn't provision it properly, and they're like, um, you know, well, you know, you got to log into the modem and. Uh, you know, here's that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm already there. Yeah, I'm all, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I already found the default password. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like admin, admin, or admin and nothing. Yeah, right, so, right. But I'm with you. There's no risk of anybody other than someone in on your network um, doing that. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That's that's kind of my feeling. Is I've, I'll leave it where it is. I've, I've, I haven't had a problem yet. That's not necessarily the right approach to answering whether or not you should. You know, like should you back up? Well, I don't know. I've never lost any data yet. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I've again. It's all about eyes wide open, right? Making intentional choices. And, and um, I feel like I'm good on this one. But if, if you folks, if I'm overlooking something or if John and I are both overlooking for something, like this is what this show's all about. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is where you're going to send in your questions and tips and all of that, but also follow-ups to, you know, what we're talking about here. So it's good. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Right. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Was that not clear? Excellent. Okay. Uh, good. Much clearer now. Much clearer. Okay. Clarity is good. That's great. Uh, good. In terms of clarity, my friend, we confused Rich in the last episode, and I fear we may have confused others. Rich, and maybe it wasn't quite the last episode, but we've been talking about Wi-Fi again recently. Uh, with that, It's nice to have that conversation sort of rekindled. And he says, I was listening to episode... 813 and you managed to have me uh caused me to have more geek time waste but that's good time i like geek time waste it's good he says uh he has uh very we were talking about the number of streams and all of that uh in most recent or a recent episode i think it was more recent than 813 but maybe not where we were talking about you know two by two radios and three by three radios and you know how much speed you get and all of that and he says um you know is this why i'm getting uh you know a slower speed and or i'm only seeing 867 inside of 1300 and and the answer is yes. He he's like our listener in the previous episode. He has a two by two router now, whereas previously he had a three by three one, which is all fine. Um, but he asked a question. The follow up to his question was: uh, Is it possible that I have some setting that is limiting me from accessing the third radio? He's like, I have Linksys Velop, and they are you know tri band routers. So why am I not getting the three by three stream. And this is a valid question. It's, it's an incorrect question in it technically, but I totally get why you're asking that question because this gets very confusing. His links is Velop. It's a mesh system and each unit that he has, uh, no, I don't want Siri to talk to me. That's really weird. Normally I take my watch off when I record. Now we all know why, uh, the Linksys Velop, his version of it has a uh, tri-band setup, which means it has three radios in it. I happen to know, and most tri-band setups are, are this way, but the Linksys is certainly this way. 
It has two 5 gigahertz radios and one 2.4 gigahertz radio, right? And it will choose which one or ones it should use for the mesh, you know, conversations and which ones it should use for the front hall to the clients. And sometimes the same radio can be used for both. So it is possible, depending on how his setup's configured, that he can and should be able to see all three radios, both five gigahertz and one 2.4 gigahertz. And certainly he's connecting to at least one of the five gigahertz radios by the speeds that he's telling us he's seeing 867. And that is the maximum that he will see because each radio has a certain number of antennas and it's the number of antennas that define how fast your devices can connect. And when we talk about streams, when we're saying two by two or three by three, we're not talking about the number of radios. We are talking about the number of antennas per radio. So when we see a tri-band system, it means there's three radios. That says nothing about how many antennas per radio. In fact, we could talk about the Orbi from Netgear and the first sort of flagship model of that Orbi had three radios. It had two, and they were very distinctly defined, but the two of them that were for front hall were a 2.4 and a five gigahertz, and they were two by two radios. The third radio was dedicated to the backhaul between the Orbeez, and that's a four by four radio, which is part of why the Orbeez have that super fast, super long range backhaul because of all the beam forming that you can do when you have more streams uh, and antennas uh, available. So I hope that that's clear radios and then antennas per radio. And instead of saying antennas per radio, we use the word streams. I know it's confusing because tri-band two by two, it's like, which is it? The answer is yes, it's both. So thank you for asking that question, Rich. I hope we've clarified here. I don't know if you have any thoughts or an additional way to clarify this one, John. Um, I think that's as straightforward as one can make it. Okay. So. All right, cool. You want to take us to Mark? He had a question about photo sharing. Yes. All right. Let me go to Mark. Oh, jumping around here. Yeah, we're jumping around a little bit. I'm, I'm, here we go. Yeah. Okay. Um, John, oh, photo guru. Not really, guys. <laughs> and Dave, master of family sharing. Yes, I, I'd say that's accurate. Uh, I, I'm morning. a user I'm of family this. sharing. I don't know that anyone's a master, mm. but yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm writing this for my deck as I'm sipping my first cup of coffee. Great time to write questions, though, once you've had your first cup. On a very ple very pleasant Saturday morning in Chicago. Um, and I was just thinking of something. How do I go about sharing 24 gigabytes of photos currently on my iMac with family members? The photo share will get bigger as I collect pictures from my other 50 family members. I would like to do this as cheaply as possible. I have Comcast Internet with a brand new three terabyte airport I could use. I also inherited a Mac mini with two one terabyte drives that I put the latest OS on. I haven't looked into that yet. Is Apple server still available? I have a few domain names I've collected over the years that I could use, or do I use Linode? I haven't checked their data pricing. Well, I know companies will be around forever, quote, <laughs> I prefer to have control over my data. So I would like to keep my data in house if possible. Thanks. Um, 
couple of thoughts on this, Dave. This is a huge question, so yeah. no one person I think could answer it. But um, yeah, I haven't done much in the photo space. I, I do most of my pictures now on my iPhone and Instagram them and stuff. Um, uh, but I think the first place to look, Dave, is that they have something um, in that it leverages your local and cloud storage uh, would be in photos. There's something called a shared album, and it actually can incorporate family sharing. Um, and there's an article here, which I directed him to and, you know, get, give it a shot, but, um, turn on shared albums on your Mac or windows computer. <clears throat> so that's yeah. the first place I'd look. Um, I'm not sure how he would leverage his airport or Mac mini. Um, the other thing is that, no, uh, I, I think at one point you could do a photo server with, um, uh, with Mac OS server, where right now Mac OS server just does um, uh, profile management. Right. Um, they stripped out all the other stuff. So the answer is, I mean, if you get an older version, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't really recommend that. Um, the other thing would be, uh, and this is the reason that a lot, of, or at least me at one point, uh, subscribed to the various cloud services, is that they all offered a way to back up your photos from your iPhone. And that was that was nice until mm -hmm. uh, iCloud photo sharing came along. So, um, and a lot of us are probably subscribed to multiple photo services. And uh, last I used Dropbox to share photos. I mean, it was, it was pretty seamless and, you know, you, you could get a web page and, and send it to other people. So I would look at your various cloud services, you know, Dropbox, OneDrive, Google Drive. Uh, I think Amazon has something too. And oh yeah. Uh, yeah, for see sure. if they would work for you. Um, another would be uh, Flickr. Uh, I use Flickr in the past. Um, you know, they changed their terms and conditions where you don't get a ton of free space anymore. You got to throw them some money. Right. Uh, and I haven't really done that yet. Right, right. Um, the last thing is that, I don't know, it, it sounds like he does not have a Synology, but um, Synology has something called PhotoStation. Uh, Which, uh, yes, and also moments. Moments kind oh, of right. replaces PhotoStation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's a different thing, but it is the new thing. Yeah, it, it, you know, he didn't mention that he had a Synology. Although, if he did, that moments would be my immediate first choice uh, because it's going to be able to do it's going to be able to hit more of the boxes than, than any other one thing. The thing about that is, you know, he's not like, he's not using his three terabyte time capsule. He's not using his, you know, three terabytes, his Mac mini. He's kind of doing something different, uh, but it will let you do your own sort of shared photo library or personal photo library or both very, very easily uh, right there the the rest of this no like your mac and your time capsule really aren't going to be able to participate in this unless you count mac os's content caching which you can turn on in in uh, system preferences content caching uh, oh sharing and content caching that will store lots of different things uh including like software updates and various other iCloud data and, and it will start to cache some of your photos. 
So, uh, so you have, you know, easier local access to it, but the user interface doesn't change on your devices. It just decides, you know, whether it should go out to the network and get them or if it can get them locally from your local network. So yeah, there's, there's not a, there's not a, a straight up way. Like I'm trying to think if there's some third party photo sharing thing like moments, right. But that is available for the Mac own cloud. I might have something. Um, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, own cloud is, is kind of, your, well, it's your own cloud and you can do file sharing and syncing and things like that. I, I don't know exactly how much of a photos, you know, infrastructure they have in own cloud, but, but that would be another, another way to go about that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, that's a, that's a tough one. We use both iCloud photo library and Synology moments here. Um, the way we work, we treat moments like the backup of, um, of iCloud photo library and iCloud photo library is the big one. And we do use the, like you said, John, the shared library is great. We, you know, we'll create a shared library of, of lots of different things. And then like my son just graduated from high school, which was a very, very different experience than uh, any other graduation. It was, you know, mostly drive through, but it was, it actually did a great job. It really was like festive and, and it, it was great. Uh, but we took a lot of pictures and some video and all that. So we created a shared you know, album for that amongst the four of us and dumped, you know, all our stuff in there. So everybody has access to what everybody did. Cause we all had slightly different vantage points to view it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I got. I don't know. You got anything else, John, like that? No. That's, okay. Uh, we're good. Cool. Uh, all right. The, you know, while we're, well, no, let's, let's go to Craig here. Craig, asks he says uh i could tell you a long story about my needs but i just thought i would condense it into a relatively simple question perfect let's say a person wants to replace a brand new macbook air that has 128 gig ssd and 8 gigs of ram with another brand new macbook air that has a one terabyte ssd and 16 gigs of ram the macbook being replaced is running catalina uh, and the new replacement, of course, is running Catalina. I think one, the older one is on 15.3. The newer one's on 15.5. Um, the reasons for the replacement are many, not the least of which, he says, is my own stupidity. <laughs> uh, he says, I guess he, he bought less capabilities than, than he wanted. 128 and 8 wasn't quite enough for him. So three questions. Under these circumstances, would you recommend using a carbon copy cloner clone to transfer everything from the replaced MacBook to the new MacBook? Or would you recommend using Migration Assistant to do the transfer of data? And is it even possible to do this swap with virtually no problems? So the good news is I do this all the time and I've done it quite a bit recently. Anytime you hear me talking about uh, you know, checking out a new laptop from Apple, like when I most recently checked out the 2020 Air, you know, I'd like to use it. So it's not just, well, well, let's fire it up and, and run some tests on it, which of course I also do. But then it's like, all right, now I want to have, you know, I want to live on this thing for a few weeks or however long it makes sense to. And, and so that involves doing exactly this kind of migration. And what I do is I do a clean install on the machine to which I am migrating. And then 
as part of that clean install, it comes up and it says, do you want to use migration assistant to pull data in? And I say, yes. And then I either use Wi-Fi or I use a Thunderbolt cable between the two devices. And quite frankly, I'm not, I, I know technically Thunderbolt's way faster, but when two devices are next to each other and the way Mac OS migration assistant does it, they, it only uses, um, an ad hoc connection between them. I mean, it uses your Wi-Fi network to find each other, but then once they found each other, they leave your Wi-Fi network and create an ad hoc connection between them. So there's no like delay of going back and forth to the router. Kind of like we were talking about with the Apple TV earlier this episode, this is a dedicated Wi-Fi connection that only exists between those two devices. So it's super efficient. I've done it both ways. I'm not convinced that Thunderbolt really in the end is all that much faster Although it's top end speed is much faster, but you know, it's a lot of small files and things like that that are moving. So either way, you know, that's how I do it. It usually takes somewhere between depending on how much data, you know, 30 minutes to two hours and then I'm finished. I, I do have to go through and, you know, reset up my, my touch ID because you'd have to do that no matter how you did it. Even if you just recloned from carbon copy cloner, cause that's part of the T2 chip and all of that stuff. And I have to redo my Apple um, uh, wallet stuff if if I want to have that on, you know, whichever machine I'm going to and and all that. And then when it's time to go back, I do exactly the same thing. And uh, and yes, I do carbon copy cloner clones throughout this process, but I don't uh, I don't use them. They are my backups. Uh, and then, of course, before I ship the machine back to Apple, I do one more round of clean install. When it comes back up and it says, do you want to use migration assistant? I shut the computer off. I put it in the box. I send it back to Apple and then it's got nothing on it and they're good to go. So, but I also would do that sending it in for service and all of that stuff. So, um, which we've also had to do with my son's machine. It broke in a really weird way, but Apple fixed it. It was strange. The screen broke in the lower left-hand corner. Like it, it somehow the edge of the like bottom of the MacBook smashed into the edge of the screen and like cracked it a little. I have no idea how that would be even possible, but Apple, when he told them about it, they're like, Oh yeah, we know what that is. And they fixed it. No problem. He is under Apple care plus, but it wasn't even a, there was no incident charge or anything. Anyway, we did the same thing coming and going for obvious reasons. So, so what are your thoughts on that though, John? Um, Anytime that I've upgraded a machine, um, I've done pretty much what you do is yeah. make a clone just in case something doesn't go right. Use the migration assistant and cross your fingers. Yeah. So. Yeah. Migration assistant's really good. Um, I mean, it does, you know, we talk about cruft a lot. It does bring over some level of cruft. If you consider applications that you're not using and settings for applications, like those things are definitely cruft and it bring that it, it brings over because it doesn't know it does not bring over all your caches and all of that stuff. It lets those get rebuilt. So, you know, it's a, uh, you know, anyway, Oh man, we have, there's like, you know, there's a couple of cool stuffs found that I'm going to talk about briefly here, John. I was, I went to, I went to showstoppers this week, because, you know, that's what we do. Uh, but I went from my desk downstairs because they do these showstoppers online, which is great. And they have like four or five companies, you know, that when they do the, each of these. And have you gone to any of these, John? Did you do you do you attend them? The virtual showstoppers? Uh, no, I make a, a 
I'll try the next one, but mm. I've, I've gotten the invites. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, they do a good job with it. List. Yeah. And, and so I saw two things this week that, that interested me at this showstoppers. The first is called Matterport, which is, and it's at matterport.com and it's for your iPhone and it's free at least to get started. And it might be free depending on how you, how you leave it. What it does, it, it used to not work with the iPhone. You standalone, you had to add other things, but what it does is it cre lets you create a 3d um, environment of your room, your house, whatever. And you just do it by taking pictures with your iPhone. So think about, you know, doing a virtual tour for someone, right? Like a, 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 a realtor would, would benefit from doing this. And you just take the pictures with your phone. It knows because of all the spatial awareness that exists in the phone, stitches it all together, creates this 3d environment that you can just move through and it's awesome. And I think one environment, house, building, whatever, is free with your account. And if you want to add more than one at any point in time, then, you know, you pay, which makes perfect sense. But like the guy who was demoing it was showing how he used it. They made, a, a you know, an environment of a few rooms of their home and they created a virtual escape room for his son and his friends to play for his son's virtual birthday party because they couldn't get everybody together because of social distancing and all that stuff. So they created this thing and you can have little touch points where you, you know, you click on something and it, and in this case it was, you know, showing you clues for puzzles that you had to solve and, and then, you know, get access to the next room and things like that. Uh, you could also do it and have like links to, you know, uh, what is that? Oh, that's that printer. Great. Like here's where you go to buy it for, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever, you know. Uh, but it seems pretty cool. I have not messed with it a whole lot yet, but um, it seems like, seems like a fun little thing. So anyway, there's a, and it's a nice way to share things too. You can give people that, you know, that immersive experience. So if you, let's say you just bought a new house and you want to show it off to your relatives, but you don't want your relatives and with their germs in your house. Well, here you go. Like you can, you can do this. So anyway, that's, uh, that's Matterport for iPhone. Did you, have you ever heard, this has been around for a while, but, but it, you know, only relatively recently available to do, to do all the capturing with the iPhone. Have you messed with this or have any thoughts on it, John? No, not really. I remember messing with some, was it called VRML at one point? Yeah. 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 yeah and I think there was a radar. Yeah. But I, I don't know if that ever really caught on. So got it. <clears throat> got it. I've seen 3d photos on, on Facebook, but they're, they're that's static. different. It's not like, an yeah, that's yeah. just a one vantage point. You can't move around. Mm -hmm. It's not linked. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah. No, this does a map of the environment. Like it's going way deeper than just photos like it it knows and you can do you can like zoom up and out and get dollhouse view and like it's crazy the the amount of data that they're able to pull and yeah it's cool uh and then i haven't checked them out yet but sure was on this particular showstoppers showing their new aonic 50 wireless noise canceling headphones uh these remind me of the oh what was the name of them was it the parrot headphones years ago just the the way that these that might not be the right brand name i know i'm getting it wrong but anyway these from the looks of it and sort of the design aesthetic these remind me of kind of those you know super high-end um 
well-built headphones. I'm, I'm curious to check them out, but, um, but you know, they're, they're full wireless. They support Apple's AAC for Bluetooth audio so that you're getting high quality audio, you know, out of them, which is for Mac and iPhone users. That's as good as that'll get right now. They also support Aptex for high quality audio from your Mac, although your iPhone doesn't support it. Uh, to my knowledge anymore, any yet, I should say, but the Mac does. So, you know, it's got, it's got, they, they made sure that you're getting everything. And then of course, if you want real time or, and, or higher quality audio, you can plug in and, and not be wireless for that too. So um, we'll put links to both of those in the show notes, but I, you know, these, these look like a pretty good thing. 20 hours of battery life, uh, Bluetooth five. So very, very cool stuff. So, uh, I wanted to share that here, John. How are we doing on time? Yeah, that's that's we're gonna have to uh we will put cool stuff found towards the top of next week's episode because uh we're we're out of time for this week, my friend. Uh, unless there's anything else you have to add. I mean we could we could squeeze one more thing in, no? All right. Well, that's uh that's where we're at then, and uh we'll see if we can bring the band in. Yes, we can. There they are. The band is uh, back in the studio, virtually. Not quite ready to have other humans in my studio with me. Maybe someday. I mean, definitely someday. I don't know when that will be. (laughs) But, yeah. It's good. It's good. Uh, I don't know, John. Any? Do you have anything to add? Anything to share? Any last-minute requests for next week's show? I don't know. Anything? Shout out. Cool. Well, thanks to everybody who listened. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. We have a lot of things that we didn't get to that we are going to, you know, you know how this goes. It's we, we evolve. It it just, it's an, it's an ever evolving conversation. It is good stuff. And thank you to everybody for your tips and thoughts. Everybody in the chat room at live.macgeekab.com to uh, help us, clarify things throughout the show so that we're not leaving you with incomplete information that is super super helpful thanks to all of our sponsors of course during the episode uh, you heard about expressvpn.com slash mgg devontechnologies.com slash mgg ancestry.com slash mgg and of course we have our other ongoing sponsors like smilesoftware.com slash podcast otherworld computing at maxsales.com barebones.com eero.com slash mgg lino.com slash mgg thanks to all of them thanks to you for checking them out thanks to all of our premium listeners because you rock too and you know it thanks to my son for making our live.maccab.com page nice job kiddo John, any thoughts before we uh, before we get out of here for today? Well, you brought us into this day, and I'm going to get us out of it. Okay. And the way I'm going to get us out of it is to suggest to everyone that you don't get caught. Made up.